Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore allyship, how to support black people and other people of color in the fight for equity, protection from police brutality, and to dismantle systemic racism, and how allyship can go wrong when well-meaning white people take the mantle of ally but fail to check in with black leadership or center black people. My guests are John Jones III, Director of Community and Political Engagement at Just Cities in Oakland, formerly incarcerated and a single father of two, Jocelyn Prince, Principal at ALJP Consulting, Associate Member of Beehive Dramaturgy Studio in New York, and Faculty of Theater and Performance Studies at Northwestern University, and Els Kuya-Jones, Deputy Director of the North Star Fund in New York. John, if I'd like to start with you. What exactly do BIPOC need from allies? Good question. I just want to bring to memory World War II around the subject of allyship. The United States of America was in alliance with um, Russia, China, and Great Britain. The target, right, the mutual benefit or interest was stopping Hitler. We know that after the war ended, after Hitler was stopped, America entered a Cold War with both Russia and China that lasted for the remainder of the century, including this century. So to me, it's an example of how people can come together. You can form an alliance around a mutual interest, but what happens when that interest is satisfied, when it's exhausted? They end up becoming enemies. England and America formed an alliance that really grew and developed into what I call a comrade. That relationship didn't end when Hitler was stopped. In fact, when 9-11 occurred, even though we now know, and many of us knew then, that President Bush was lying about weapons of mass uh, destruction, England was right there. Right. Like we got your back. So to me, that's what's needed in this moment, not just uh, uniting right now talking about police brutality or defund the police, especially here in Oakland, where we're dealing with a crippling housing crisis where many black and brown people, specifically black people, are being pushed out. So how do we build a real solidarity in all these movements that actually oppress all of us? just to uh, different degrees, obviously, but it's no less true. I offer Jocelyn the opportunity to share your thoughts on what you need and what you think people of color need from allies. I mean, I agree with a lot of what John has to say. I think about this idea that, you know, our freedom is bound up in each other's freedom, right? And so it's about working together, not because you're here to help me, but because you have a stake in the struggle as well. And I'm looking for allies or co-conspirators that want to proactively dismantle racism, all those other isms with me. There's a great history of white activists, freedom riders going all the way back to John Brown. So I'm looking for white people who can draw on that history and proactively take up the mantle and work together with us, not in some form of charity or I feel sorry for you isn't your life's so terrible, but realizing that we're not free until all of us are free. Els, I want to talk to you because you kind of occupy all of these spaces. Uh, you are uh, a person of color and you are married to someone who is a person of color and you have a biracial child. And so you occupy the space of ally and someone who seeks allies and someone who's intersectional in a lot of different ways. To hold both, to want to be um, and strive to be a good ally for my Black friends, but also um, wanting allyship 
as a person of color myself, it's, it's a lot to hold both. And I think what it is that I want from allies, and then also I'm, I'm telling this to myself as someone who strives to be an ally for the Black community and Black people in my life, is to not be defensive, to let your defenses down, to listen and to follow the lead of Black people, and to recognize that while um, Asian American communities are hurting, the folks who are being killed on the street in large numbers are Black folks, and to not make this about us now exclusively, but as Jocelyn said, it's about all of us and that our liberation is tied to one another. You know, I, I say that I am married to a Black man and my son is um, a descendant of American slavery. And so I have a stake in this, but at the same time, that sucks like to say that, oh, because my son is black and my husband is black, so this is important to me. It should be important to everyone. It should be important to me, regardless of who I ended up with and who, if my child was fully Filipino or Filipino and white or whatever, it should be, it should be important to everyone. So on a global scale, I want to be an ally and in a very personal scale and as a mother and as a partner, I wanna be an, an ally and um, it's hard work. It's not easy. I don't get a pass because I'm the mother of a Black boy. Um, I don't get a pass because I'm married to a Black person. Um, I am called out on um, things that I say or do that um, is construed as anti-Black. And I have to look at that and I have to sit with it every day. And it's good, like it's good, it's hard. And I want to do that. And I'm up for that. There was a This American Life uh, recently that talked about a school in Brooklyn. There were a lot of children of color. And then this group of white parents decided, oh, let's go, I mean, for lack of a better word, infiltrate the school and create a French program when there were already Spanish speakers and Arabic speakers at the school. It ended up being a situation where it co-opted rather than integrated or collaborated. And the white parents didn't consult with the, the rest of the parents at the school. And then, of course, we have the situation that happened last week in Portland with Wall of Moms, where uh, very well-meaning people misstepped because they made decisions that weren't discussed or they, they made assumptions. I don't want to judge any of those people because I think I, I could make that mistake. I could walk into that easily. And I'm sure I have, right? I think what happened with that school and also with Wall of Moms is white folks who have an idea of what allyship is supposed to look like and is performing those ideas and doing the external show without doing the internal work. So they know what it's supposed to look like externally, but haven't had this be a part of their lifelong practice allyship or being an ally or being an anti-racist is not a title that I get to hold. There are practices that we have to practice being active in um, doing every single day. And so I would never call myself an ally as much as uh, someone who's practicing allyship, or I wouldn't call myself an anti-racist as much as someone who's practicing anti-racism. Like you, I can see myself making some missteps and the hope is that I will be accountable for them. I will not be defensive. I will listen to what folks are saying and learn from it 
and become a stronger person because of it. There are too many people who want to throw their hands up in the air and being like, I'm just a dumb white guy. I don't know these things or, and I think that's a cop out. Jocelyn. I think what Elsa is saying is so important. I love what she's saying too about following the lead of black people. And I think that there's a distinction to be made between following the lead of black people and expecting black people to do all of the labor. I think oftentimes there's an awkwardness, there's a fear of making a misstep. For me, it's about not letting the perfect get in the way of the good. It's like, you can't just be paralyzed and stop doing anything because you're afraid you're gonna do something's wrong. Race is a very complicated construct. And I make mistakes as a black person. I have my own internalized racism that I deal with. And so I think that allies need to stop being so afraid of not doing it right um, and stop saying, well, I don't know how to do it. So I'm gonna just let the black people do it. I'm just gonna hang out in the background. You know, there's gotta be some courage and some bravery and some grace. This is something that I think as allies, I don't want to take away the mantle, but I don't want to make you feel like you're doing all the work. Where do I fit? Teach me. And then that's even more a burden. You know, that's one of the reasons I want to have this conversation is I think it's important for me to learn. And I'm sorry to burden you all with this, but I appreciate that you that you agreed to be burdened. Um, John, do you have anything you want to add? I'll be frank. What happened in Portland, America happened. Good point. And I want to remind people, my brother lived in Portland. I've been in Portland. First of all, Portland has an atrocious history when it comes to racism. So when the George Floyd protests first began, the thing that disturbed me was the call I issued was for white folks to, first of all, decenter themselves. It's hard for white people to separate that because everything in America is, is by them, for them, and about them. And I understand that's hard work, but you, it has to start there. You know, when I define leadership, I don't define it through the lens of the number of followers. It's really about setting an example, right? It's about being able to articulate the issues uh, through direct experience, right? And also letting white folks know how they can show up and how they can support. So one of the things I say here in Oakland, there's a tendency for people to always want to come to Oakland for protests. I'm like, we got that here. This is the birthplace of the Black Panthers. We don't need to generate any awareness here. We need folks to go into their own community and raise that level of awareness. So what we see in there in Portland, once again, is they have that saying like the, the, the white messiah or the white guilt, right? Decenter yourself. That was the first call. This isn't about you. We're dealing with 400 plus years of systemic racism that's been institutionalized. And it's going to take some deep work. Some people define racism as the interpersonal behaviors. I don't. I define that as prejudice. Racism is when it's encoded, when it's legislated. And this is where we start talking about complicity. We have systems that operate from a racial standpoint. And people, white people can mean well, but they are complicit when they are following these systems. So it changes that dynamic in the two in the conversation. So at the end of the day, what happened there is a perfect example of what not to do. When we say check in with black leadership, that's being informed. Allow us to share what you will be helpful to us. Because in the day, this is happening to us. Right. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we all need to remember is that, that like who's hurting right now, who needs support right now, who needs is you, is black people, because black people have been harmed in deep, deep ways here in our country. And we are part of that system. And I really love your distinction about prejudice versus racism. What John was saying really resonates with me about 
this problem being institutionalized and with us for 400 years. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. I'm talking about allyship with John Jones III, Jocelyn Prince, and Els Kuya Jones. Jocelyn, something you said earlier about a little bit of grace. Joe Biden made a misstep and said something you know, that he shouldn't, that he shouldn't have said. And Charlemagne the God said, I can tell the difference between an awkward ally and a white supremacist. That was um, a little bit of grace uh, in that moment, hopefully. And um, not to give us excuses to say stupid things. Hold in what Joe Biden said and misstep. I don't. I think the problem I've been seeing is there's a tendency to uh, center white fragility. And as someone who has personally experienced police brutality, including having two of my childhood friends murdered by the Oakland Police Department, as someone who at 12 years old was slammed against a wall and called the N-word, as someone who woke up on a number of occasions to the side of armed police officers pointing their weapons at the sleeping bodies of myself and one time including my son. I don't have time to center that fragility because what it does is for those of us who have to live with that, if it's difficult to just sit into a space of hearing it, can you imagine what it's like for those of us who have to experience it? So I think we have to just be really, we have to be keeping 100. So what we have to do is we have to get to a place to where we're fully and intentionally naming what's happening. And all of us, as a man, as someone that's heterosexual, what people say cisgender, we all been socialized by America, right? So we all have our own work we have to do, right? But for me, we have to be unapologetic about that as well. I'm someone that people say, well, why you always share that you formerly incarcerated? You so much more than that. I said, I do that for two key reasons. The first of all, I never want to forget who I am as a human being. And it helped to build a bridge to other people. But also I say this, as a result of that, I have both a civic duty and a moral obligation to give back to my community. And I think that's how white people should view this. You didn't create the systems, but you did directly benefit from it. So you are tasked, the same thing I tell decision makers today, you didn't create these policies, your predecessors did. But we have to be clear, all of us are tasked with ending it. What would you call Joe Biden's comment? How should we frame that? Well, I mean, I want to connect that to the previous comment around real black people voting for him. Like this whole Uncle Joe thing. Like I said, we set low bars. We did this with Clinton. Everyone say, oh, he's the first black president. He played a saxophone. His policies destroyed the black community. Three strikes, mandatory minimums, uh, the welfare uh, uh, reform, the closing of bases in the Bay Area. So my point is this, is I get on one level saying, okay, maybe he made a misstep. But we have to be clear why and how that happened, because we're still dealing with systemic racism. So for me, at the end of the day, it's kind of connect with happened in Portland. I do believe in teachable moments to use as an opportunity to dig deeper, because at the end of the day, if we're just showing up with good intentions and that happiness movement, it is set up for people to do this. I did my part. I went to a protest. I went to a march and then they go back home and do yoga. I I'm not here for that. Jocelyn. Kind of going after what John said, I'm looking more at what people do than what they say. I think the vocabulary is important. I think we need to decolonize our language. But I think you also have to have a certain amount of grace, especially when you're trying to form a coalition. I think getting stuck into that, those semantics, uh, actually takes us away from the larger issues that are at stake, what people are doing, what policies are being passed. Um, as opposed to the words that someone is using to describe something. And to John's point and to Jocelyn's point, I think um, the idea of building a coalition is important. And sometimes you have to do that with people, you know, that aren't always going to be people you want to build a coalition with, but to get to a larger end. But at the same time, holding 
someone like a Joe Biden accountable for, hey, if we support you, what is that going to look like? Can't just utilize the support and then move on. But I feel like in this round, uh, the black community in a lot of ways is speaking up. We want some tangible results here. We want to see black female vice president. We want to see the cabinet look like the country. We want to hear what your specific ideas are. Doing that nuanced work, having the conversation, speaking to each other, speaking up. And John, as you said, you know, speaking the truth or the facts or the desires and the demands and getting them out there so that we can grapple with those things. I will say that I'm not mad at yoga. I'm not mad if people of color want to go to a protest and then come home and do yoga. I do understand that it hurts to scroll in social media and around May 25th, it be all about Black Lives and George Floyd. And then two weeks later, it's like, look what I'm eating. Um, what I will say is if you go to a protest and you change nothing else in your life, then you are not being in allyship with Black communities. Jocelyn and Els, John, of course, do too, but I think Jocelyn and Els, this might be particularly something you can address, is the idea of, of intersectionality. It's about race or it's about gender. It's about uh, this or that, and, and rather than being about the whole thing. I mean, if you go back to Wall of Moms, we're seeing the tensions and the issues specifically among uh, white women and their perceived role versus uh, what black women really need. I wonder, Jocelyn, if you'd be willing to discuss maybe your experiences with intersectionality or how you navigate that? So I was a field organizer on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016, and there were lots of fascinating things that came out of that campaign in the election. One of the most fascinating things I found is that 94% of Black women voted for Hillary Clinton, while most white women voted for Donald Trump and two-thirds of white men voted for Donald Trump. And I think there are a lot of different reasons for that. But in terms of intersectionality, I think that that is because Black women sit at the apex of race and gender in this country in a very specific way, which is very much tied up into the American slavery system. And so I think for Black women, we are able to see a white supremacist right away because we understand that racism and the sexism is connected. And we also understand that with that comes ableism, um, xenophobia, uh, heterosexism. Els, anything you want to add to that? None of us live single issue lives. So when we think about defund police, it's impossible to think about that without also looking at how there is an affordable housing crisis how communities of color can't afford to live in certain places in, in our communities and how that is endangering their lives and increases the possibility of being brutalized by the police. In what ways could we enrich and strengthen the movement by, by working together? I'm fond of history because I think we can learn from it. So I wanna just real quickly talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, right? And what started that? These were Black women. It was five women arrested prior to Rosa Parks. Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old, and she was on the original lawsuit, and they actually won the end of discrimination. Those pages in history typically get stuck together. It was Black women who organized that boycott. People talk about King. No, it was Black women who did that. And they didn't just issue a call for a boycott. They made sure that folks can get back and forth to work. And mind you, this is 1955, Montgomery, Alabama. So the majority of people who used the bus were black women. Why? Because the only job that were available to them was working in the white community as a 
cook or a maid or etc. That energy was sustained for a year because I want us to imagine what is happening when you're in this carpool. You're having conversations. You're learning the name of each other's children. You're learning birthdays. You're learning holidays. I like the joke. Sometimes you're hearing when the husband is acting a fool, you know, but the point is it was real relationship building. And that is what we need in this moment, because a lot of elements in this movement, honestly, I call it corporatized. It's no longer grassroots. And then you factor in social media, which isn't a real community. <laughs> so what we need to do is go back to that model. We have to center and embrace people and not just treat them as tokenized things. So I wonder, and Justin, I'll ask you how you think it's going in the current moment. The idea of women of color being honored in and supported in this movement or in this moment? I think that time will tell how it's going. I think that the demonstrations and the protests are incredible. We'll see if this results in, you know, actual reform. I'm hopeful that it will, but, you know, we just saw in the case of Michael Brown, you know, the officer is still not being charged there. And so I think sometimes we can get a little complacent when we see, oh, there's this huge critical mass of protests and everyone's out in the streets. But then when people kind of go back to their daily life, then, you know, does it continue? Does actual change result? My husband's always saying Trump is a gift, not that he voted for Trump, but that Trump brought to light in a very stark way for white people all of the things that he already knew that he, he's like, yeah, welcome to my world. The stakes have now been risen for all of us who are not thrilled with the way this country is going. And for all of us who are now seeing almost on a constant basis in our feeds, black people being harmed and brutalized and treated, you know, so terribly. I'm hoping this will be helpful to us to, to kind of come together around moving things forward. I think that all of us witnessing the death of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd um, and the countless others, that does hurt us. That is harmful to us. It harms us to live in a world where children are put in cages and then us like having to shift and, and do work and write an email and like try to get a, go on with our days as far as Trump being a gift and shaking up and, and revealing uh, what I think is, is a great term, the white geist of the United States, uh, which I just discovered this term. Eric A. Jordan, who's a sociology PhD student in Louisville, calls it the white geist is white people who see ghosts, aliens, and the Loch Ness Monster but cannot see systemic racism. I love that. I love that. That's so perfect. That is what Trump has revealed for all of us. Yeah, and what's so very interesting is that most white people think that there is no racism, that racism doesn't exist anymore. It was eradicated with the civil rights movement, whereas most people of color, most Black people know that it exists, right? And this white people being in denial is incredibly painful for Black people. When you share your personal story, uh, you talk about how things affect you in your day-to-day -day life, and you're told that you just need to be more resilient, or you're misinterpreting that, or that's not racism, it's this. When you know what your personal experience is, you know your history, you know what those statistics are because they affect your community. Black people are three times more likely to um, get killed by police. Black women are far more likely, regardless of socioeconomic status, to die in childbirth. 
black people are followed around in a store when we're shopping. All of these things are things that I experience when I go to the doctor, when I go to the store, right? When I walk down the street. And so for white people to be in denial about that is incredibly painful. And I do agree that Trump's election has brought that into the forefront for well-meaning white liberal Americans who really are unable to see like what is right in front of their face. My sister-in-law, my husband's sister, who's black, has shared with me some of the things that she's experienced in stores. And without sharing stories that are hers, I'll say that just makes me so upset. And the same person who does something horrible to her in a public space turns around and smiles at the old white lady and holds the door for her. So it's this completely crazy two worlds thing. And so I think you're right. Like this is finally getting revealed to us in, in a different way. If we look at Donald Trump, there's a reason why he became president. There are some truths that we have to reconcile. And that honestly, for me, starts with white women. I want to remind people that our current mass incarceration complex was built upon the quote unquote protection of the fragility of white women. We paint these myths as if all white women during slavery were docile. No, many of them were complicit. They were slave owners. They also had access to black men, which was a form of rape because we were considered property and the abuse that happened when their husbands did go rape the black women. They also bashed in the heads of those babies. And in today, it's interesting, the face of racism, how it looks. You know, the white man is public enemy number one. But in these nonprofit spaces, the majority of people who are in it are white women. We have to reconcile some truths on that. Emmett Till. He was murdered, lynched because a white woman lied and then she finally uh, confessed to that after she passed away. I strongly disagree with any idea or notion that white people do not know racism exists. I believe that is a cop-out. History bears witness to that. When you look at black men being lynched and hung from trees, it was a family event and they had their kids there. In New York City, where a white woman was walking her dog, a German shepherd, not on the leash, and a black man said, hey, and it was against, she's supposed to have it on the leash. She said, hey, what's up with this dog? She told him, and while he's recording, I'm going to call the police and said a black man is harming me. People have been weaponizing the police against black men in particular. So I think, once again, it's so important for us that we have to get to a place where we're willing to have real conversations. That's your duty as an American. Forget everything else. As an American, as a member of the shared contract, as a community person. But how we get there, we have to be willing to speak the truth. I get it. We've all been indoctrinated, but absent of these real conversations, I'm just saying, I've been in spaces right here in this liberal, radical Bay Area where people are unwilling to have these tough conversations. That's why people don't become transformed. I, John, 100% agree with you. And you're channeling my husband a little bit right now. <laughs> Those exact words have come out of his mouth, too. We do have to have these hard and nuanced and complex and difficult conversations. We have to, or we're sunk, right? As you said, that we all know racism exists. It wasn't Jimmy Kimmel, but it was someone walking around, you know, do you think racism exists? No. Well, would you be black for a day? No. You know, it's like, well, clearly you know racism exists, right? If that's your answer. The incident that always comes to my mind, in addition to the ones you mentioned, was the caretaker of a, an, I think it was an autistic man. So the caretaker was black. The autistic man was white. I believe this was in Florida. The cop shows up. The caretaker has his hands up and he's on the ground and the cop shoots him. And he said, why did you shoot me? And the cop said, I don't know. That was just such a clear example of systemic racism. And we have to have this conversation. I think you just named it. When I talk about the systemic nature of this, right, it should mitigate the response that people have. I have to do the same thing as a man right? When I'm hearing the injustice in the world, we're talking about the Me Too movement and everything else. My first response should be like, oh, that's not me. I'm not a rapist. It should be, what can I do as a man? 
be informed, take the leadership of women. And then I use my privilege as a man to have these conversations with other brothers, which I do. And the same thing on issues dealing with LGBTQ folks. But it starts with the willingness to tell the truth. Because if we're always centering fragility, then what are we doing? We're not going to end it. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a member of the gay community, you know, we're all suffering and will continue to suffer under white supremacy. It is very poignant for Black people because we're the ultimate target of white supremacy, our Black skin, right? But this is something that is bad for everyone in our society. It's bad for white people too. I really appreciate Jocelyn bringing the idea and the notion of grace into the conversation. And um, Gina, also for you uh, wanting to be held accountable if you make a misstep. My response, if I am told that what I did was wrong or you're doing white supremacy culture here, my response is always thank you. Because folks could just um, be mad and not let me know. But the fact that they're letting me know and, and engaging in a tough conversation, which might be hard to talk about, means that they care about me and don't want me to continue the mistake. And I'm so grateful, of course it sucks, but I'm gonna listen and learn. Thank you to my guests, John Jones III, Director of Community and Political Engagement at Just Cities, also formerly incarcerated and a single father of two, Jocelyn Prince, Principal at ALJP Consulting, Associate Member of Beehive Dramaturgy Studio in New York, and Faculty of Theater and Performance Studies at Northwestern University, and Els Kuya Jones, Deputy Director of the North Star Fund. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.